Welcome back to another episode of the Jane Eyre Public Access Read-Along with Romance. I am Isabeau, and I read the even chapters. And I'm Morgan, and I read the odd chapters, and this week is chapter 13, so that's me. Last week, Isabeau read to us chapter 12. Isabeau, can you give us a quick recap of what happened? Indeed. Jane is feeling a little stifled at Thornfield Hall, and she went on a walk to post a letter in the town five miles from the abode. And who should appear on the road but a dark horseman on a darker horse with a giant dog? She's a little bit spooked and a lot of bit interested in this person that she refers to as the guy trash, which is a mythical creature of the Bronte invention. And we know, dear reader, it's none other than Mr. Rochester himself, but that isn't revealed to Jane until the very end when she shows back up at Thornfield and there's a handsome man sitting by the fire. Joke's on her. Mr. Rochester did fall off his horse when he saw her and and hurtied his ankle. So, chapter 13. Mr. Rochester, it seems, by the surgeon's orders, went to bed early that night. Nor did he rise soon next morning. When he did come down, it was to attend to business. His agents and some of his tenants were arrived and waiting to speak with him. Adele and I had now to vacate the library. It would be in daily requisition as a reception room for callers. A fire was lighted in an apartment upstairs, and there I carried our books and arranged it for the future schoolroom. I discerned in the course of the morning that Thornfield Hall was a changed place. No longer silent as a church, it echoed every hour or two to a knock at the door or clang of the bell. Steps, too, often traveled the hall, and new voices spoke in different keys below. A rill from the outer world was flowing through it. It had a master. For my part, I liked it better. It's been all of like two hours is what we're going to find out (laughs) in the next paragraph. But what I think is interesting is that she describes Mr. Rochester returning as bringing the outer world to Thornfield, Mm -hmm. when in fact, technically she's the outer world. Mm -hmm. She's already become so ensconced. I think ensconced is the right word. There's a real stagnation that's happening at Thornfield without Mr. Rochester. Or like a, a waiting. A stagnation, I don't know, that feels like a little too like dead and permanent, like a little too amberized, which is a non-word that I heard on a different podcast and now I can't stop saying it. But like there's still tension there, like frisian. Mm-hmm. Referring to the fact that the housekeeper keeps everything uncovered and dusted. Yeah, she does. But it has like this air of moldering. Adele was not easy to teach that day. She could not apply. She kept running to the door and looking over the banisters to see if she could get a glimpse of Mr. Rochester. Then she coined pretext to go downstairs in order, as I shrewdly suspected, to visit the library, where I knew she was not wanted. (laughs) Then I got a little angry and made her sit still. She continued to talk incessantly of her ami, Monsieur Edouard Fairfax du Rochester, as she dubbed him. I had not before heard his prenomens. And to conjecture what presents he had brought her, for it appears he had intimated the night before that, when his luggage came from Millcott, there would be found amongst a little box in whose contents she had an interest. So I'm going to give you guys a heads up. There's a lot of French in this chapter. And I tried my best, but I feel like it might be so distractingly bad that if it's a really long passage, as this next one is, I might just read the English translation, if you're okay with that, Isabeau. Mm -hmm. All right, great. So, it appears he had intimated the night before that, when his luggage came from Millcott, there would be found among it a little box in whose contents 
she had an interest. And that must mean that there will be a gift inside for me and perhaps for you too, Miss. Mr. Rochester has talked about you. He asked me the name of my governess and if she wasn't a small person, rather thin and a little pale. I said yes because it's true, isn't it, Miss? <laughs> I and my pupil dined as usual in Mrs. Fairfax's parlor. The afternoon was wild and snowy and we passed it in the schoolroom. At dark, I allowed Adele to put away books and work and to run downstairs. For from the comparative silence below, from the cessation of appeals to the doorbell, I conjectured that Mr. Rochester was now at liberty. Left alone, I walked to the window, but nothing was to be seen thence. Twilight and snowflakes together thickened the air and hid the very shrubs on the lawn. I let down the curtain and went back to the fireside. In the clear embers, I was tracing a view, not unlike a picture I remember to have seen of the castle of Heidelberg on the Rhine, when Mrs. Fairfax came in, breaking up by her entrance the fiery mosaic that I had been piecing together, and scattering to some heavy, unwelcome thoughts that were beginning to throng on my solitude. So the castle of Heidelberg, that's what we think of like a fairy tale castle up in the Alps, but there's just the one that looks like that. Everything else looks like a military base. <laughs> it looks like Thornfield Hall. <laughs> Yeah, right. I love this, that she's looking into a dying fire mm -hmm. and divining things. A little bit of foreshadowing, perhaps. Mr. Rochester would be glad if you and your pupil would take tea with him in the drawing room this evening, said she. He has been so engaged all day that he could not ask to see you before. When is his tea time? I inquired. Oh, at six o'clock. He keeps early hours in the country. You had better change your frock now. I will go with you and fasten it. Here's a candle. Is it necessary to change my frock? Yes, you had better. I always dress for the evening when Mr. Rochester is here. That's so weird because like tea is a before supper thing. So six is actually late for country hours for tea because dinner should be served between like 8.30 and like nine. Like all of this is very weird. I actually think in this historical period, dinner and tea were interchangeable. Oh, okay. Maybe it was Memory Palace, maybe it was 99% Invisible, but they were talking about like the concept of tea time and how it's changed. That's funny. I go back and forth on this idea where you like dress for dinner. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's like you change your outfit. Like, like what a good ritual. But I'm also like, mm, I just want to wear my comfy shit now. It's also a very privileged ritual, as we'll find out. Totally. In the newest season of The Crown, right, Margaret Thatcher famously flubs whether it's dinner or tea that she should dress for. And just the idea that, like, you had so much time in a day that part of your commitment was changing clothes. Oh, if you like clothes, you're about to get some clothes talk. I repaired to my room and with Mrs. Fairfax's aid replaced my black stuffed dress by one of black silk, the best and the only additional one I had except one of light gray, which in my lowwood notions of the toilette uh, or toilet, I thought too fine to be worn except on first-rate occasions. This is another theme of like the governess's life is that your clothes are never good enough, but it's always okay to just wear whatever you have personally ranked your finest clothes. Which reminds me of how I used to get dressed for weddings when I was a child. I would just choose whatever <laughs> I thought was the coolest thing I had. Mm-hmm. It also continues to be a marker of like what a strange place governesses occupy in the social order where it's like you know all the rules of the upper class but you're not really like you have to be invited you don't really belong you don't have enough of the stuff to do the thing and you can't like sit down to dinner with the servants below stairs yeah you're like very much in a liminal space between the help and the gentry yeah and then there's also this element of like I'm thinking about, like, for example, Mistress of Melon, where our heroine was from a, a well-to-do family, right? You go home and then you are once again the gentry and you're catered to. Anyways, 
You want a brooch, said Mrs. Fairfax. I had a single little pearl ornament which Miss Temple gave me as a parting keepsake. I put it on and then we went downstairs. Unused as I was to strangers, it was rather a trial to appear, thus formally summoned, in Mr. Rochester's presence. I let Mrs. Fairfax precede me into the dining room and kept in her shade as we crossed that apartment, and passing the arch whose curtain was now dropped, entered the elegant recess beyond. Two wax candles stood lighted on the table, and two on the mantelpiece. Basking in the light and heat of a superb fire lay Pilate. Adele knelt near him. Half reclined on a couch appeared Mr. Rochester, his foot supported by the cushion. He was looking at Adele and the dog. The fire shone full on his face. I knew my traveler, with his broad and jetty eyebrows, his square forehead made squarer by the horizontal sweep of his black hair. I recognized his decisive nose, more remarkable for character than beauty, his full nostrils denoting, I thought, collar, which is an inscrapable temper. Okay, whoever did the footnotes, inscrapable is an equally opaque term as collar. (laughs) Noted. His grim mouth, chin, and jaw. Yes, all three were very grim, and no mistake. His shape, now divested of cloak, I perceived harmonized in squareness with his physiognomy. I suppose it was a good figure in the athletic sense of the term. Broad-chested and thin-flanked, neither tall nor graceful. All right, I'm going to pause because I think this is one of the lesser points, but still a very obvious point of how the Rochester is the basis for our current romantic heroes. Okay. And that is he has an athletic body, whereas Mr. Darcy, most historians would believe, would have a soft body. What was considered a good body of the era was not necessarily this athletic toned kind of physique. Sure. And that's something that we've superimposed on historicals. I don't remember how Mr. Darcy is physically described. Like, I'd have to go back and look. But what I think is so right about this, but also so funny, is like, I think you're exactly right. Like, there's this discussion of like how broad his shoulders are and how muscled he is, but he's also thin flanked. And I'm like, he has a small ass is like essentially what that means. And I'm like, he's also lying down. How are you commenting on the back of his thighs? I thought she meant like, I thought the flanks were like just this, your thighs. Yeah, they are. But also your butt. I think you might be adding a little bit of editorialism there talking about butts. I mean, flanks, they're the back. They're the back of your legs. No, they're not. They're the side. Mm. They're just your thighs in general. Mm. Talk about projecting. <laughs> Though neither tall nor graceful. Oh, yeah. Not a tall hero. We make such a big deal out of this now, whatever. There's a short hero, but. Neither tall nor graceful. He's just like. Masculine. Super masculine. Sort of like a stocky, gimly son of gloin type. I love how you're just like picking and choosing things and you're like making it up. You're like, when people say flank, they mean butt. And you're that is like, what people you mean just want to talk that. about his butt. Just be like, they talked about his flank. Now I'm imagining his butt. But they're not talking about his butt in the book. That's you. Is it? That's a hundred percent. The book is not telling you to think. You are choosing to think about Mr. Rochester's butt all on your own. You want to think about it, And that's cool. But don't put that on Jane. I mean, she's categorized his features here and, like, made a calculation. Yeah, but I don't think she's that interested in his butt. She's interested in his squares. She's interested in his squares. 
Mr. Rochester must have been aware of the entrance of Mrs. Fairfax and myself, but it appeared he was not in the mood to notice us, for he never lifted his head as we approached. Here is Miss Eyre, sir, said Mrs. Fairfax in her quiet way. I got really worried that I was matronizing Mrs. Fairfax all of a sudden. Oh, I think, like, the housekeeper always gets the honorific of Mrs. whether or not she's married. Mm. He bowed, still not taking his eyes from the group of the dog and the child. Let Miss Eyre be seated, said he. And there was something in the forced stiff bow and the impatient yet formal tone, which seemed further to express... What the deuce is it to me whether Miss Eyre be there or not? At this moment, I am not disposed to accost her. I sat down quite disembarrassed. A reception of finished politeness would probably have confused me. I don't even care. <laughs> like, it, it, like, doesn't even matter to me. Like, I, I don't, I'm, like, used to, I, I mean, it's, like, like, that's me. That, like, everyone, if you ask anyone, they're, like, Jane is, like, I'm just, like, really direct and honest. I'm just, like, be roll with me. Be roll. Jane's feelings are hurt, I think, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I think thou doth protest too much. Yeah. I could not have returned or repaid it by answering grace and elegance on my part. But harsh caprice laid me under no obligation. On the contrary, a decent quiescence under a freak of manner gave me the advantage. Besides, the eccentricity of the proceeding was piquant. I felt interested to know how he would go on. It's just like... What's your deal? <laughs> You're so rude. How funny. Now I can be rude too. Yeah, I'm rude all the time. I can do it. I can do it. Watch me go. He went on as a statue would. That is, he neither spoke nor moved. Mrs. Fairfax seemed to think it necessary. Thanks for explaining that. Mrs. Fairfax <laughs> seemed to think it necessary that someone should be amiable. And she began to talk. Kindly, and as usual, rather trite. She condoled with him on the pressure of the business he had all day on the annoyance it must have been to him with that painful sprain. Then she commended his patience and perseverance in going through with it. Madam, I should like some tea, was the sole rejoinder she got. She hastened to ring the bell, and when the tray came, she proceeded to arrange the cups, spoons, etc., with assiduous celerity. Oh, we should say celerity more often. We should. It's really beautiful. I like the word celerity, too, because, like, you think of celery, you know what celerity means. Nothing. I and Adele went to the table, but the master did not leave his couch. Will you hand Mr. Rochester's cup? said Mrs. Fairfax to me. Adele might perhaps spill it. I love the word cup. 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 I did as requested. As he took the cup from my hand, Adele, thinking the moment propitious for making a request in my favor, cried out, Ne sais pas, monsieur, qu'il y a un cadeau de pour mademoiselle Eyre dans votre petite coffre? Who talks of cadeau? said he gruffly. Did you expect a present, Miss Eyre? Are you fond of presents? And he searched my face with eyes that I saw were dark, irate, and piercing. I hardly know, sir. I have little experience of them. They are generally thought pleasant things. Oh my god, Jane. Okay, I take back that mean impression I did of you saying you were going to be rude. You really pulled it out. Generally thought, but what do you think? I should be obliged to take time, sir, before I could give you an answer worthy of your acceptance. Present has many faces to it, does it not? And one should consider all before pronouncing an opinion as to its nature. Miss mm. Eyre, you are not so unsophisticated as Adele. Jesus. Yeah, she's a child. <laughs> I know she's like seven. Like what the fuck, Mr. Rochester? I know. She demands a cadeau clamorously the moment she sees me. You beat about the bush. Perhaps I have less confidence in my deserts than Adele has. I also have deserts in my edition. 
And it still says deserved rewards. Weird. I understand just desserts. I want my just desserts. I do too. But this is a 1S deserts. Yeah, we're being really parsimonious with our S's here. It is in my edition as well. Do you think it was originally desert, like 1S desert, for some reason? Like, you get to a desert at the end of your journey or something. And then someone, like, one time made a pun about, they were at dinner and they were like, I can't wait to get my just desserts. And then everyone was like, oh, that actually makes significantly more sense. Way more sense. Yeah, we should go with that one. We should go with that one. I wish I had a British person to ask right now because, like, we were watching something the other night and I heard a colloquialism and, and it's just slightly different in the American colloquialism. And I was like, ooh, is this really British? Are you guys doing something to make fun of us? I don't know. And I didn't look it up because I was not in that mood. So this is a fun. I actually just listened to this whole thing about the great renunciation of men's fashion, which came after the American Revolution when dandies in Britain started dressing like farm boys. But they had those soft bodies and not like hardworking farm bodies. So they had to wear these incredibly tight suits to like bind them up. Amazing. I love talking about male girdles. I feel like this is not a thing that we talk enough about and that like men are also constantly worried about how they fit into their clothes. We just don't talk about male spanks enough. It was really interesting though because I, I like know the progression from like corsetry to aerobics in women's fashion. But I think it's so interesting that like men didn't necessarily wear girdles to achieve this. It was just that their vests were so tight that it would hoist their chests up, which has to be even more uncomfortable. But also like think of the construction that would have to go into like those buttons and everything else to like do that work. Impressive. And it was just like supposed to look like effortless. My mom made this. So I could push a plow efficiently, right? Like if you cut open like the exact same looking outfit, like fawn breeches, shirt waist, navy jacket. One time a guy was demonstrating how to tie a cravat and he spent two hours undoing and redoing it until it looked just disheveled enough. And like you would cut open the structure of those two outfits, like one from like a revolutionary U.S. soldiers and then like what the gentry was wearing afterwards. And you would just see like the seam comparisons, I'm sure, would be staggering. Hmm. That's really interesting. But why didn't they just think like, hey, maybe I should exercise? I mean, exertion of that kind for the gentry was seen as gauche. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then they're like, but I want to look like I do it. Right. Which is like the move that like tan took on where it's like if you were tan up until a certain point that denoted that you worked outside, that you were a farm laborer, that you were of a lower socioeconomic class. And then there's the switch with the leisure class where it's like I'm tan from like being, you know, on vacation or by the pool or whatever. Noted Nazi Coco Chanel. She was from the working class. And she always kind of had a darker pallor, and then she made it about vacation. Mm-hmm. Leisure. She was a Nazi. Yes. Anyways, where were we? <laughs> because I have less confidence in my deserts than Dell has, she can prefer the claim of old acquaintance and the right, too, of custom, for she says you have always been in the habit of giving her playthings. But if I had made out of case, I should be puzzled, since I am a stranger and have done nothing to entitle me to an acknowledgement. Oh, don't fall back on over-modesty. I have examined Adele and find you have taken great pains with her. She is not bright, she has no talents, yet in a short time she has made much improvement. Including on her English, Mr. Rochester. Please be conscientious. Seriously, like she's in the room. Sir, you have now given me my cadeau. I am obliged to you. It is the need of teachers most covet, praise of their pupils' progress. Humph. 
said Mr. Rochester, and I am inclined to agree. And he took his tea in silence. Come to the fire, said the master when the tray was taken away, and Mrs. Fairfax had settled into a corner with her knitting, while Adele was leading me by the hand around the room, showing me the beautiful books and ornaments on the consoles and chiffonniers. We obeyed, as in duty bound. Adele wanted to take a seat on my knee, but she was ordered to amuse herself with Pilot. You have been resident in my house three months? Yes, sir. And you come from, from Lowood School in Shire. What noise did we say we were going to make? Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. That, that was from me. I don't remember the n- sound we... Don't worry. I think you and I are going to have different noises, and mine is shocking, so I don't want to, like, Yeah. Maybe we you. just don't do it. Ah! A charitable concern. How long were you there? Eight years. Eight years! You must be tenacious of life. I thought half the time in such a place would have done up any constitution. No wonder you have rather the look of another world. I marveled where you had got that sort of face. When you came on me in the hay lane last <laughs> night, I thought unaccountably of fairy tales and had half a mind to demand whether you had bewitched my horse. I'm not sure yet. Who are your parents? I have none. Nor ever had, I suppose. Do you remember them? No. I thought not. And you were waiting for your people when you sat on that stile? For whom, sir? For the men in green. It was a proper moonlight evening for them. Did I break through one of your rings that you spread that damned ice on the causeway? I shook my head. The men in green all forsook England a hundred years ago, said I, speaking as seriously as he had done. And not even in Hay Lane or the fields about it could you find a trace of them. I don't think either summer or harvest or winter moon will ever shine on their revels more. Mrs. Fairfax had dropped her knitting, and with raised eyebrows, seemed wondering at what sort of talk this was. Well, resumed Mr. Rochester, if you disown parents, you must have some sort of kinsfolk. Uncles and aunts? No, none that I ever saw. Liar. I guess there's two liars talking in this conversation. Couple of lying liars. Where do your brothers and sisters live? I have no brothers or sisters. Who recommended you to come here? I advertised, and Mrs. Fairfax answered my advertisement. Yes, said the good lady, who now knew what ground we were upon, and I am daily thankful for the choice Providence led me to make. Miss Eyre has been an invaluable companion to me, and a kind and careful teacher to Adele. I'm <laughs> doing like a Will Forte impression. Don't trouble yourself to give her a character, returned Mr. Rochester. Eulogiums will not bias me. I shall judge for myself. She began by felling my horse. Sir, said Mrs. Fairfax, I have to thank her for this sprain. The widow looked bewildered. Miss Eyre, have you ever lived in a town? No, sir. Have you seen much society? None but the pupils and teachers of Lowood, and now the inmates of Thornfield. Inmates. If you break down the word, it is inmates in the same house and were mates, which is kind of nice. But even in the 1840s, inmates would have connoted somebody who couldn't leave under their own willpower. Well, that's true. That's also true of all of them. Have you read much? Only such books as fell in my way, and they have not been numerous or very learned. You have lived the life of a nun. No doubt you are well drilled in religious forms. Brocklehurst, who, I understand, directs Lowood, is a parson, is he not? Yes, sir. And you girls probably worshipped him as a convent full of religious who worshipped their director. Oh, no. You are very cool. No? What? A novice not worship her priest? That sounds blasphemous. <laughs> That's a joke. I disliked Mr. Brocklehurst, and I was not alone in the feeling. Oh, Jane. All right. Spilling the tea. 
I disliked Mr. Brocklehurst when I was not alone in the feeling. He is a harsh man, at once pompous and meddling. He cut off our hair and, for economy's sake, brought us bad needles and thread, with which we could hardly sew. That was a very false economy, remarked Mrs. Fairfax, who now again caught the drift of the dialogue. I just want to acknowledge, Mr. Rochester just did a pretty clever turn of phrase where he said it would be blasphemous for the nuns to not worship their boss, right? And Jane just steamrolls that for an opportunity to talk shit on Mr. Brocklehurst. Yeah. Who is she really obsessed with? (laughs) Get over it. (laughs) Get over the trauma of eight years of your awful schooling. And was that the head and front of his offending, demanded Mr. Rochester? He starved us when he had the sole superintendence of the provision department before the committee was appointed. And he bored us with long lectures once a week and with evening readings from books of his own indicting about sudden deaths and judgments which made us afraid to go to bed. What age were you when you went to Lowood? About ten. And you stayed there eight years. You are now then (laughs) eighteen. I assented. Arithmetic, you see, is useful. (laughs) Without its aid, I should hardly have been able to guess your age. It is a point difficult to fix where your features and countenance are so much at variance as in your case. And now, what did you learn at Lowood? Can you play? A little. Of course, that is the established answer. Go into the library. I mean, if you please, excuse my tone of command. I am used to saying, do this, and it is done. I cannot alter my customary habits for one new inmate. Go then into the library, take a candle with you, leave the door open, sit down at the piano, and play a tune. I departed, obeying his directions. Enough, he called out in a few minutes. You play a little, I see. Like any other English schoolgirl, perhaps rather better than some, but not well. I closed the piano and returned. Mr. Rochester continued. Adele showed me some sketches this morning, which she said were yours. I don't know whether they were entirely of your doing. Probably a master aided you? No, indeed, I interjected. Ah, that pricks the pride. Well, fetch me your portfolio. If you can vouch for its contents being original, but don't pass your word unless you are certain. I can recognize patchwork. Then I will say nothing, and you shall judge for yourself, sir. I'm a real art critic here. Yeah, and a music critic to boot. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Jesus. I brought the portfolio from the library. Approach the table, said he, and I wheeled it to his couch. Adele and Mrs. Fairfax drew near to see the pictures. No crowding, said Mr. Rochester. Take the drawings from my hand as I finish with them, but don't put your faces up against mine. He deliberately scrutinized each sketch and painting. Three he laid aside, the others, which when he had examined them, he swept from him. Take them off to the other table, Mrs. Fairfax, said he, and look at them with Adele. You, glancing at me, resume your seat and answer my questions. I perceive these pictures were done by one hand. Is that hand yours? Yes. And when did you find the time to do them? They have taken much time and some thought. I did them in the last two vacations I spent at Lowood, when I had no other occupation. Where did you get your copies? Out of my head. That head I see now on your shoulders. Yes, sir. Has it other furniture of the same kind within? I should think it may have, I should hope, better. He spread the pictures before him, and again surveyed them alternately. While he is so occupied, I will tell you, reader, what they are. And first, I must premise that they are nothing wonderful. The subjects had indeed risen vividly on my mind. As I saw them with the spiritual eye before I attempted to embody them, they were striking. But my hand would not second my fancy, and in each case it had wrought out but a pale portrait of the thing I had conceived. These pictures were in watercolors. The first represented clouds, low and livid, rolling over a swelled sea. All the distance was an eclipse. 
So too was the foreground, or rather, the nearest billows, for there was no land. One gleam of light lifted into relief a half-submerged mass, on which sat a cormorant, dark and large, with wings flecked with foam. Its beak held a gold bracelet, set with gems, that I had touched with as brilliant tints as my palette could yield, and as glittering distinctness as my pencil could impart. Sinking below the bird and mast, a drowned corpse glanced through the green water. A fair arm was the only limb clearly visible whence the bracelet had been washed or torn. The second picture contained for foreground only the dim peak of a hill with grass and some leaves slanted as if by breeze. Beyond and above spread an expanse of sky, dark blue as at twilight. Rising in the sky was a woman's shape to the bust, portrayed in tints as dark and soft as I could combine. The dim forehead was crowned with a star. The lineaments below were seen as through the suffusion of vapor. The eyes shone dark and wild. The hair streamed shadowy like a beamless cloud torn by a storm or by electric travail. On the neck lay a pale reflection, like moonlight, the same faint luster, touched the train of thin clouds from which rose and bowed this vision of the evening star. The third showed the pinnacle of an iceberg, piercing a polar wintry sky. A muster of northern lights reared their dim lances, close serried along the horizon. Throwing these into the distance rose, in the foreground, a head, a colossal head, inclined toward the iceberg and resting against it. Two thin hands joined under the forehead, and supporting it, drew up before the lower features a sable veil, a brow quite bloodless, white as bone, and an eye hollow and fixed, blank of meaning but for the glassiness of despair, alone were visible. Above the temples, amid wreathed turban folds of black drapery, vague in its character and consistency as cloud, gleamed a ring of white flame, gemmed with sparkles of a more lurid tinge. This pale crescent was the likeness of a kingly crown. What it diademed was the shape which shape had none. All right, we got some, not footnotes, and note. All right. The references to Paradise Lost by John Milton. The other shape, if shape it might be called, that shape had none, distinguishable in member, joint, or limb. What seemed his head, the likeness of a kingly crown had on. Satan was now at hand. She did a watercolor of Satan in the Antarctic. I just watched season one of The Terror. I'm like, wow. Were you happy when you painted these pictures? Asked Mr. Rochester presently. I was absorbed, sir, yes, and I was happy. To paint them in short was to enjoy one of the keenest pleasures I have ever known. That is not saying much. Your pleasures, by your own account, have been few. But I dare say you did exist in a kind of artist's dreamland while you blent and arranged these strange tints. Did you sit at them long each day? I had nothing else to do because it was the vacation. And I sat at them from morning till noon and from noon till night. The length of midsummer days favored my inclination to apply. And you felt self-satisfied with the result of your ardent labors. Far from it, I was tormented by the contrast between my idea and my handiwork. In each case, I imagined something which I was quite powerless to realize. Not quite. You have secured the shadow of your thought, but no more, probably. You had not enough of the artist's skill and science to give it full being. Yet the drawings are, for a schoolgirl, peculiar. 
As to the thoughts, they are elfish. These eyes in the evening star you must have seen in a dream. How could you make them look so clear, and yet not at all brilliant? For the planet above quells their rays. And what meaning is that in their solemn depth? And who taught you to paint wind? There is a high gale in that sky, and on this hilltop. Where did you see Latmos? For that is Latmos. There. Put the drawings away. Latmos is the mountain where goddess of the moon Selene saw her beloved Endymion. I had scarce tied the strings of the portfolio when, looking at his watch, he said abruptly, It is nine o'clock. What are you about, Miss Eyre, to let Adele sit up so long? Take her to bed. Adele went to kiss him before quitting the room. He endured the caress, but scarcely seemed to relish it more than Pilate would have done, nor so much. I wish you all good night now, said he, making a movement of the hand toward the door, in token that he was tired of our company and wished to dismiss us. Mrs. Fairfax folded up her knitting. I took my portfolio, we curtsied to him, received a frigid bow in return, and so withdrew. You said Mr. Rochester was not strikingly peculiar, Mrs. Fairfax, I observed when I rejoined her in the room after putting Adele to bed. Well, is he? I think so. He is very changeful and abrupt. True. No doubt he may appear so to a stranger, but I am so accustomed to his manner, I never think of it. And then, if he has peculiarities of temper, allowances should be made. Why? Partly because it is his nature, and we can none of us help our nature, and partly because he has painful thoughts, no doubt, to harass him and make his spirits unequal. What about? Family troubles, for one thing. But he has no family. Not now, but he has had, or at least, relative. He lost his elder brother a few years since. His elder brother? Yes, the present Mr. Rochester has not been very long in possession of the property, only about nine years. Nine years is a tolerable time. Why was he so very fond of his brother as to be kept inconsolable for his loss? Why, no, perhaps not. I believe there were some misunderstandings between them. Mr. Roland Rochester was not quite just to Mr. Edward, and perhaps he prejudiced his father against him. The old gentleman was fond of money and anxious to keep the family estate together. He did not like to diminish the property by division, and yet he was anxious that Mr. Edward should have wealth too to keep up the consequence of the name. And soon after he was of age, some steps were taken that were not quite fair and made a great deal of mischief. Old Mr. Rochester and Mr. Roland combined to bring Mr. Edward into what he considered a painful position for the sake of making his fortune. When the precise nature of that position was I never clearly knew, but his spirit could not brook what he had to suffer in it. She knows a lot of emotional details for not knowing any, like... Of the concrete, like, details? Yeah. He is not very forgiving. He broke with his family, and now for many years he has led an unsettled kind of life. I don't think he has ever been resident at Thornfield for a fortnight together, since the death of his brother, without a will, left him master of the estate. And indeed, no wonder he shuns the old place. Why should he shun it? Perhaps he thinks it gloomy. The answer was evasive. I should have liked something clearer, but Mrs. Fairfax either could not, or would not, give me more explicit information on the origin of the nature of Mr. Rochester's trials. She averred that they were a mystery to herself, and what she knew was chiefly from conjecture. It was evident, indeed, that she wished me to drop the subject, which I did accordingly. And that's the end of chapter 13. Any impressions? Um, what's interesting, I think, is as we think about the larger project of Rochester as the basis of the romantic hero in 
romance, there are a couple of things that immediately become clear from this chapter. He's the second son who's to inherit. I think that's something that we see not infrequently in historicals. The fact that his trials are cloaked in an emotional valence rather than like a concrete one, I think is also something that we see as like an introduction into trouble. Also that he has a piercing and rude gaze, like he's just imperious. Mm -hmm. I think another thing this chapter brought to the front of my mind is that when considering, you know, Rochester as the basis, the framework, the skeleton of the romantic hero, I think Jane herself plays a pretty major role in that, in that as he's talking to her, he doesn't say anything like she's beautiful. He does see things of beauty within her immediately, right? Yeah, she's ethereal, celestial of another world. Has the very specific compliments that we come to expect. The other thing is I didn't recall how early in the book they start to justify what's going to come to be his big bad. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that his trauma is family-based, right? Mm-hmm. He's got a big bad family and like a sort of like miserly father is at the root of a lot of that, I think is also very much in line with contemporaneous historical heroes. That greed is something of a cruelty is interesting. Greed and legacy coupled together, where it's like what Miss Fairfax said about like not wanting to break up the estate. And it's like that meant that Edward Rochester, our Rochester, was left in a position where he had to be pretty mercenary about securing money for himself. And like we find out what that is. Well, he wasn't. His father was mercenary about securing money for Edward. I mean, yeah, it put him in a bad position, but I thought he was the one who made a bad decision. Well, I don't want to spoil too much. I know. That's what I'm thinking too. I mean, we can even just refer to the way Mrs. Fairfax describes it. He did not like to diminish the property by division, and yet he was anxious that Mr. Edward should have wealth too to keep up the consequence of the name. And soon after he was of age, some steps were taken that were not quite fair and made a great deal of mischief. Old Mr. Rochester and Mr. Rowland combined to bring Mr. Edward into what he considered a painful position for the sake of making his fortune. So he is acted on by his father and older brother. It's tough, but yeah, the excuse-making of his behavior starts early. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's excuse-making. I think it's justification. Like, the idea that this is a justifiable choice, whatever is coming down the line. Which is, I think, an interesting distinction, or feels important to me right now. I think it's right to call it justification, especially in the context of Mrs. Fairfax, especially in the context of Mr. Rochester. But I also think, like, it's worth it to also think about other words that are in sort of that constellation. So like justification, rationalization, excuse. I think it's more of a rationalization than a justification. I feel like a justification would be like trying to imply that it was correct. Mm -hmm. And I think excuse is kind of like this couldn't be an excuse because there's too much correctness there that his agency was removed from him in the initial choice. And so everything that came after that kind of comes from that, that original sin that was not his own. And so I do think rationalization, I think, probably best fits. Like, we have to make it so that he's not a bad person for what comes after. And that we are already setting up the real villains, right, in this story. Which, to be honest, like, this book could have just made the victim of his choices 
the villain. It could have very simply done that. And so I think these kind of early moves also alleviate that pressure of the victim being somehow responsible for their position. But this is all incredibly vague. (laughs) uh, But if you know what we're talking about, you know what we're talking about. But you probably have some idea. But I, I think this little piece from Mrs. Fairfax at the end is doing a lot for both Bertha and for Edward. I think so, too. To protect them. Uh, what do you think about Jane? You know, the thought that I had when she started talking to Rochester was that it's always fun to see somebody give as good as she got. And there's this line when they're talking about the presence. And she has this line where it's like, But if I had to make out a case, I should be puzzled since I am a stranger and I have done nothing to entitle me to an acknowledgement. And it's a mirror of the fact that he didn't acknowledge her when she came in. And so now she's acknowledging the non-acknowledgement of that action. And I thought that was like one of those like subtle little Lizzie Bennet moves that I enjoy so much. And like, but I also think you're right. And I wouldn't have noticed and without your prompting that like, they're talking kind of over one another and that both of them are delivering these like really good jokes. And like, neither one is acknowledging either of the jokes or like the cutting remarks, like they're not parrying each other. Well, I think Rochester is making jokes. I think he's saying things with humor and lightness. And I think Jane is bitter. And I think while she's being witty, as far as redressing her grievances, I don't think she is trying to be humorous. I think she's trying to be acknowledged mm-hmm. and to to scold her betters. In the only language that she has, which is like... Which is this really passive, evasive way. And I think you're right. They are talking over each other. He wants to have this kind of funny conversation and maybe a little flirtatious. And she kind of bites that a bit. But I think... She's mostly just mad, which I think like that's true of Jane, as we discovered when she was 10 years old, is that her animus is rage. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that's brought out even more from the fact that she's, you know, doing watercolors of of dead women with crows stealing their bracelets and in a shipwreck of a storm. (laughs) Yeah, a shipwreck in a storm and and the head of Satan Mm. in the Antarctic and the evening star. Although it's like an interesting idea that the evening star is like dead behind the eyes. Mm-hmm. Very goth. I don't know if she's plain clothes goth anymore, though, wearing that black silk dress with her pearl pin. Seriously, she is like out, out as goth girl. Also, like that yeah. she's painting watercolors of pieces of Paradise Lost. Like, okay, Jane. And I think maybe Rochester's shortness and terseness comes in, in realizing that she's not going to flirt like she's too serious of a person and that there's something she has darker interests I suppose I think that's probably part of it but I also think like you know he's like terse and imperious by nature and so like he's never had anyone to curb him before or call him out passively or obtusely for his bad behavior he's only ever been indulged and rewarded in Thornfield since his brother's death for his like shitty behavior and so like Jane comes in and she's like, I'm not going to flirt with you. You're being shitty. She does flirt with him, though. Whenever she does the like, the green men have not been back. Yeah. She is flirting. It's just her animus is rage. So like, it's going to be more important to her that she point out to him that he was a dick to her, right? However she can. I think that's a new experience for Rochester. Right, exactly. I think he's more interested when we meet him at the beginning of the book. He's more interested in being surprising than being surprised. Yes. 
And I think perhaps the early conversation for him is that he wants to set her back on her heels. And she's not able to because she's so singularly focused on her own ideas of justice, right? Yeah, which also makes Jane a very particular kind of archetype where this like cool, calm, collected, like sort of ice queen where like the temptation then of the main character hero is to like chip under it. Because I think you're exactly right. He is more interested in being surprising than being surprised, which like his animus towards her is about, as you say, putting her on her left foot. And like that kind of temptation is always very weird to me. It's weird to read when somebody like wants to get under your skin. Contrarians. Yeah, I think it's pleasurable for me to read, but it's I hate experiencing it. When I know someone's doing it to me, I just hate it. I think most people do. It's so tricky to talk to someone who has an agenda that's not listening isn't really part of it. Like listening to diverge and subvert, listening to figure out how you can be more correct or more interesting, right? Or like whatever. It's like an oppositional form of listening. Yeah, exactly. It becomes adversarial. Mm. I think sometimes they think that that's playful. I think they think that they do too. And I think Rochester envisions himself as being playful in this moment. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I I think the other side of that is that they think they're smarter. And I think Rochester is definitely that. Yeah. He's thinking he's the smartest one in the room. And he's pleased when he gets answer for answer because it like ups the ante of the game. Also, it like proves him right. Like she's not good at piano. Like he only has like certain like measures for like a woman's intelligence. And he's reassured by the fact that she's maybe better than like the average, but she's not like great, right? Like that's what he's really saying. Also, Rochester, why don't you goddamn sit down and play the piano like how you do? We are going to encounter eventually a counterpoint. Jane doesn't know it yet. Bless her. (laughs) All right. So next week, chapter 14. Chapter 14. We'll see you there. With that, loosen your Janes. But never your heirs. Mwah.